Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness, Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right. Yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Gonna run that as the open. The insubstantiality of the film isn't due to the infinite yet flimsy malleability of CGI gimmickry, but instead to the dispersion of its drama throughout the many cinematic installations set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's Richard Brody of New Yorker. I just thought it was a wonderfully written review, but I disagree with him. Yes, I'm not crazy about superheroes, but I thought Avengers Infinity War was very good. I'll give you my full review coming up. Along with Hank Azaria, he's back again. I think it's one of the best in the files we ever had. He was so funny and so entertaining. He's back again with his second season of Brockmire. Uh, it's wonderful to have Hank, not only as Hank Azaria, but then, yes, yeah, spoiler alert, at one point we convinced Jim Brockmire to actually show up as well. So you'll get twice the pleasure and twice the fun. Thanks, as always, listening to Cinephile. Please do give us some love on iTunes rate and review. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs, but if you can rank it at a five stars, I'd appreciate that. And give us a review and let us know what you think of the pod and how we're doing. Uh, coming up shortly, we're going to have a Tribeca Festival recap episode, and there's lots of good stuff there, including Rick Passmore's Brush with Fame. Uh, ben Lyons has a movie called The American Meme, and Passmore met Paris Hilton, and there's a picture of Passmore with Paris Hilton. And I tried to get Paris Hilton on the red carpet, and let's just say... Something happened. So that's coming up in the next podcast we do. But today, like I said, we're going to focus on Hank Azaria and a few movies. Plus, you know, I talked about Nick Nolte. I just read Nick Nolte's books. We have a book review of Nick Nolte, who's one of my favorite actors. I wish he wrote more about Affliction. It always happens. You buy the book. You're like, How much do you talk about the movies I like? But the few pages about Affliction were noteworthy. Uh, he's got stories about 48 Hours, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Prince of Tides, all the rest of it. So I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a recap of all of that. Let's kick it off, though. I'm telling you, Avengers Infinity War. So I have superhero fatigue. I said that with Black Panther. I gave it two and a half Maple Leafs, even though it's got over 90% of Rotten Tomatoes, even though it's set box office records. Uh, I wasn't crazy about it. So Avengers Infinity War, I go into it slightly muted. I say, all right, well, it's going to be too long, which it was. <laughs> but it's, you know, running time is going to be listed at 149 minutes plus trailers. All right, 245, away we go. But listen... Of course, I like a good long movie. If it's an action-packed film, I can take it. It's all good. Uh, and at times, it lags a little bit. I didn't think it was too long, but I didn't think it was as bloated as I thought it would be. Uh, at times, certainly, when you have so many superheroes, just by nature, it's going to be hard to say, all right, let's give each one five minutes of screen time. Let's give each one a pithy remark. Let's give each one a clever quip. Let's give each one, perhaps, a death scene that is worthy of the characters. So, I get the fact it's tough to juggle, and and hats off to, to Anthony Russo and Joe Russo, the directors, because I couldn't imagine making this film, how much studio interference there was, how many people are telling you, you got to do it like this, do it like that, all the fanboys and Marvel people all over you. So I thought they did a commendable job, and ultimately it's got some spectacular action sequences. Ostensibly, the story is about Iron Man, the Hulk, and the rest of the Avengers. They're all uniting to battle their most powerful enemy, which is the evil Thanos. And he's on a mission to collect these six Infinity Stones. And he plans to use the artifacts to inflict his twisted will on reality. And here's part of the charm. Roger Ebert said this years ago, when it comes to superhero movies or movies of that ilk, you've got to have a great villain. 
There's a reason why Batman's the best, because Joker's the best villain, and you've got other great villains as well, Two-Face, Riddler, Catwoman, etc. You've got this whole cadre of great villains. So in the case of Avengers Infinity War, Thanos is excellent. He's an excellent villain. He's played by Josh Brolin. And it's amazing to think, and with so many Avengers, I wouldn't say Brolin steals the show, but he's a very good villain, and he holds your interest. And he is actually an environmentalist. Like It's it's an amazing storyline that he wants to help save humanity because, not save humanity, excuse me, save the Earth because of all the damage humanity has caused. And his whole goal is that, no, I'm going to wipe out half of the human race. Just kaboom, away we go because of what you guys have done to the Earth. And there's a really interesting subtext and subplots with him and Zoe Saldana's character, who's from the Guardians of the Galaxy. And a Great dose of whip from the Guardians of the Galaxy people. I thought the first movie was excellent. Second one I wasn't as big of a fan of. But as soon as Chris Pratt shows up and I am Groot um, and the rest of the crew, I mean, it's it's they're awfully entertaining. And I think they offer a good bit of levity. Their character is a lot of fun. Iron Man's, of, of this crew, Iron Man, I think, is great. I mean, Robert Downey Jr., it's tough to find a better melding of actor, persona, and character and role than Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man. Like, it, it just fits him like a glove. You know what I mean? Snarky. And and that the cleverness to him, he's intelligent, he's funny. Like Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man, he can't beat it. So I can get enough of that. And Thor, I think it's interesting judging by the crowd reaction. People love Thor. Like I think Thor is a real crowd favorite, and he's good in the movie. Could use a little bit more Hulk, but Bruce Banner, I do like uh, Mark Ruffalo a lot, and he was very good. So ultimately, particularly that scene, um, I think there's a couple of action sequences about midway through the film that are really well orchestrated. Um, I think now spoiler a little bit. Because you're going to say, oh, how much Black Panther? Not as much Black Panther if you're a Black Panther fan. If you're a big Black Widow fan, you're a little disappointed. Uh, like some of these superheroes, they're kind of just there, but they're kind of hovering in the background. I think if you like Iron Man, Thor, the Guardians people, uh, then you're going to be really pleased with this film. So overall, I thought it was very good. The box office is just gigantic. I mean, it was $250 million domestic. Uh, it's already set global world records. Like you knew it was going to be huge, and right out of the gate, it has been huge. So ultimately, I liked it, and I liked it more than I thought I would like it. And my brother, I'm sure, is going to give it for me, police, when he sees it and say it's the Citizen Kane of our generation. Rick Passmore leans more towards fanboyism, but I think he has a good grounded sense of reality. What did you think of Avengers Infinity War? I'm with you. It's like it's right around the three, three and a half for me. I think um, the runtime is fine for how they built it. It's it's incredibly well paced for being uh, close to two and a half hours. It does hit the ground running. There's no it's, question. It is nonstop, and they really go. But the, the the one downside is if you're going into and you've never seen another one, you're, you're going to be completely lost. Yes. You, you have to see Doctor Strange. You have to see at least Guardians of the Galaxy 1. You have to see, you know, Winter Soldier. You have to see some of Black Panther at least. Like, you have to have some context for these for this universe and going into it. And if you don't have that, you're just going to be completely out of it. Now you might be dazzled by the effects and the fighting and the nonstop action and the quips. But if you have no con- context for these characters and, and the storyline, you're going to be out of it. What do you think Dan Stanzik's going to think of it? Has Dan Stanzik seen enough Has- Marvel movies? <laughs> Go ahead, Danny. Uh, some, not all. Like I haven't seen guardians of the galaxy. Yeah, Stanzik might come back with a two Maple Leaf review. Yeah, but I've seen Civil <laughs> not tar- War, not, not the Target demo. <laughs> I saw the other. I, I felt like if I saw the other Avengers one, I'd be fine. You're telling me no? No, you need a lot more, a lot more context. Listen, I don't want to dissuade him from seeing it. Just have him go see it. And afterwards, if you find some plot holes, ask some questions. He could ask for your passport. Uh, Avengers Infinity War. Tweet us what you think, by the way. Rick's doing a great job with Cinephile ESPN on Twitter. So give us your thoughts on the movie. Thanks to Jamel Hill, who right away quote tweeted me and wrote, Adnan has spoken uh, when I tweeted by review. So as always, you can follow us up on Twitter. Those are the thoughts of Avengers Infinity War. Also, and this is a real surprise, 
By the way, I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. A Quiet Place is fantastic. First great movie of 2018. I'm not a horror movie aficionado. It's not a genre I particularly enjoy. I don't even know how many horror movies I actually own. And yet I'm in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And, of course, I've got a few hours to myself before the spring football game I'm going to call. And I said, well, I'm going to go see a movie. There's one theater in Tuscaloosa. Thankfully, it was only a minute walk from the uh, hotel where we were staying at. And away I went and saw a Quiet Place. And I said, well, I, I see great reviews, 95%. And it's John Krasinski. And I know him from The Office and Emily Blunt. And here we go. Uh, but I was shocked at how atmospheric it was, and it shows how sometimes the simplest of conceits, if executed well, can be absolutely brilliant. And the story is simply this. If they hear you, they hunt you. All right, you talk about a high concept, great tagline. There you go. If they hear you, they hunt you. This is now a dystopian future in which these animals, creatures, whatever you want to call them, psychos, are hunting people if they hear you. So they use sound to hunt their prey. So the story is about John Krasinski and his wife, Emily Blunt, a couple kids, and right away it starts out, they've got to use sign language, because literally you say a couple words, the creatures come and they kill you. And Krasinski does a smart job of setting it up. He shows all these newspapers talking about, you know, cities being ravaged and and just what these creatures are doing, killing everybody and how they're figuring out how to survive. And it's just this horrible world. And so you've got to use sign language and eye contact to communicate to stay alive. And that's how you rely on one another to live. And by the way, it's not like a horror movie where you say, okay, we just need to stay quiet for 24 hours until the villain's gone. This is now the world. There's no solution to this. Now the world is you can't ever talk again unless you're underground in a cellar and there's music playing. And, you know, you see a lot of times maybe they'll put headphones on, at least listen to music and get out of their own heads and to kind of whisper maybe in the shower a little bit. But honestly, any sort of communication is potentially deadly. And right away in the opening sequence, he shows you that and you go, all right, he's not messing around. And it's it's actually a more intelligent film than you expect. I mean, it's it's a brisk 90 minutes. And I think one of the keys of the horror movie is this, too. You've got to have something of consequence. You know, they always see in these satires, they always joke around, okay, the secondary character, oh, the black guy, he's going to get killed in the forest. All right, the hot, attractive bimbo, she's going to be gone. You've got to have something of consequence to really start to believe the story and believe anything that happened. That's why Psycho is one of the all-time great movies. Because the hero of the picture, Janet Leigh, gets killed in the shower 40 minutes of the movie. So right away, it completely upends expectations. You say, where are we going now? Like, if he's willing to kill off his lead character in the shower in this unbelievable sequence, which is gory and terrifying, this could go anywhere. And so you've got to upend expectations. And Krasinski realizes that not only with the opening, but later on in a pivotal scene, he goes, all right, you think I'm going to make some of the consequence? Watch this. And what is really shocking is that in a movie that gives you the thrills and chills, it has a lot more emotional resonance than a horror movie like this is supposed to give you. And that's why I give it a little bit extra. I probably would have given it three Maple Leafs, but because the fact he's got the guts to push the envelope a little bit and a couple of scenes in particular that stood up to me and stuck with me, as you know what, I'm giving it four Maple Leafs because you really pulled off something here that I don't think many people would have done. So it's the most suspenseful movie I've seen in a while. It's a scary roller coaster. It's got excellent cinematography. John Krasinski, who we know as an actor and a comedian on The Office, now shows he's got some talent as a director. He directed the movie, put his heart into it, it's made $148 million of the box office, so I'm very curious to see what else Krasinski's going to make. Ricky, again, you were a horror movie guy. What did you think of A Quiet Place? I haven't got to see it yet. Uh, it's just It kind of just fell on the back burner. It was definitely high up on the list to see it, um, but all of these rave reviews coming out, yeah. and I, I incorrectly mis, uh, uh, misquoted it, or not misquoted it, but said this is John Krasinski's first film. It's actually his second film. Oh, okay. But... Um, yeah, it, when I saw the seeing the trailers and, and as they're going out and we're going with a group of friends here from ESPN, we always go. We got our movie passes. We yeah. do that whole thing. Our one friend Kaylee, who's a stage manager, uh, hates horror movies. 
So every time we see that trailer, we're always looking at her going, when we seeing this? When we seeing this, Kayla? Right. Come on. And she's like, hell no, I'm not doing it. And but it's driven me as a horror fan. It's like I need to go see it. I just haven't had the no. the moment to be able to do it. But I'm apps. It's 100 percent on my radar. Got to see it in the theaters at some point soon. Please do when you can. Because I mentioned somebody here at work too. I go, I'm not a big horror movie fan. And one of the guys at work goes, Oh, it's more of a suspense movie. And I saw Airport. I go, This is a horror movie. This isn't. This isn't like unlawful entry where Ray Liotta is playing the psycho cop. All right, this is a horror movie. There's no question. There's you're looking to jump and scream at times. There is a fine line between horror and thriller, and I think that the yeah. Quiet Place looks like it is going to toe that line. Yeah, you look at something like Ten Cloverfield Lane that kind of la- a couple years ago with John Goodman and uh, Mary, Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Yeah, that got attributed as a horror movie. That's more of a thriller because of its its nature with the like with the character driven psychoticness of what is going on. There's really no like imminent danger like gonna get caught immediately all the time it's definitely more suspense thriller mm-hmm. where this one looks like it's more driven in that horror genre where you use shock and surprise to your advantage to yeah. engage the audience no no question a quiet place is definitely a movie to check out one last review and then we're going to get to hank azaria and i don't know what happened i need somebody else to go watch this movie to explain to me what i missed wes anderson is one of my favorite filmmakers Isle of Dogs, 90% of Rotten Tomatoes. It's stop, stop motion animation, which, of course, he did previously with Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I liked a lot. It's got a really good cast. Brian Cranston, for the first time, working with Wes Anderson. He plays the lead dog. you got Edward Norton, Scarlett Johansson, Bill Murray, Liev Schreiber, Jeff Goldblum, Bob Balaban, Greta Gerwig, Tilda Swinton, F. Murray Abraham, Francis McDormand. And I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Like, I, I, I'm watching this movie going... All right, all the hallmarks are there of Wes Anderson. It's got exquisite production design. You know, I love his visual compositions. Every time you watch it, you go, man, this guy just stocks the frame with so many cool, interesting details. It's got his off-balance, uh, off-kilter humor. It's got his mixture of sweetness and sentimentality and yet a little bit of gore when you least expect it. It's got all those trademarks, and yet watching it at times, you go, man, at times this guy's just too cute for his own good. At times you go, I, I get the people who don't like Wes Anderson movies, but it just go nuts when they watch them because they go, maybe I'm just a cat person. <laughs> maybe it's just in need of a stronger storyteller. But along with the fact it's visually clever, um, I just didn't think it had a strong enough story. And ultimately, in Wes Anderson movies, they always look amazing and he puts so much detail and it's so immaculate. But if the story's not compelling, which ultimately this is not. The story, by the way, is about this, Isle of Dogs. Okay, so they're doing this. And by the way, you can see parallels to you know today's immigration uh, dilemma and such, but and he has said that himself. Of course, he's trying to use what's going on with politics. But essentially, this is just about a boy and his dog, and it's in Japan, and it's about a dogs who are being excommunicated and being thrown off the island. And so you've got this whole concept of what's right in terms of welcoming others and how a dog should be like. But I mean, essentially, if you're a dog lover, you're going to love this film. There's no doubt about that. If you like Wes Anderson, which I do, I would think I would like it. But for me, it didn't work as much as other films do. It didn't truly make my heart sing the way his early films do, particularly Royal Tenenbaums or Rushmore or uh, films of that ilk. So maybe I just missed the boat on it. Somebody else can tweet me again. Send a file at ESPN and let me know what made this a standout for me. For Wes Anderson, I thought it was a misfire. I thought the sum didn't add up to all the parts, and I didn't think it was as strong as I thought it would be. I'm going to give it to Maple Leafs. Now it's time for Hank Azaria. All right, Brockmeyer Season 2 premieres this Wednesday at 10 o'clock on IFC. The great Hank Azaria back with us on Cinephile. Hank, great to see you again. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm glad we both have an enormous <laughs> mic. Seems like overkill, doesn't it? We're holding what's called a stick mic, and we also have a lav mic. And so a lav. This is just, you know, you've got such a good voice. We want to make sure that yeah. we're picking up everything and all the ambient sound Even that comes with it. one stick feels like it. We, don't, we shouldn't switch. Right? No, <laughs> no I mean, things might get a little messy there. Maybe we'll switch. 
We'll switch later, maybe. Fair enough. Congrats on season two. Just as funny as the first one. And <laughs> Thank I, you. And I think it's hard when you do a series. You can like stream this. season one on Hulu, by the way. Okay, good to know. Get that out of the way. They tell me. Yes. You stream season one on Hulu. Yes. When you do a show that's this fresh and this irreverent and bold, I think sometimes the challenge becomes for season two. All right, how do we top this? How do we top the outrageous humor, the outrageous bits? But I think that. Brockmire season two, I don't want to say it matures, but I think you find levels of maturity within Jim Brockmire's character. So within the comedy, there's actually some like serious episodes. There's a funeral episode. There's an intervention. I think you took a lot of chances with Jim in second season. Yeah. Again, I have to credit, as I did for season one, Joel Church Cooper as the head writer. He didn't want to just rest on the laurels of season one. We were all thrilled with how – I just all I care about is it funny. Right. It's really all I care about. Um I know that we're going to get, you know, the sports stuff and we're going to get, um, uh, we're going to, we're going to touch on what we need to touch on, but mm-hmm. I just, I, I insist that comedies be funny. I'm right. funny that way. <laughs> and, uh, but Joel, the, the first three episodes of season two kind of are in the same tone of season one. And then, yeah, it starts to get kind of real. Right. As Brock Myers drinking progresses and, uh, yes, he has to face, uh, realities. Mm-hmm. Um, as he always was, I guess, but it's not just a joke. It's, right. it's actually, it's kind of hard. Yeah. And I think that's a reminder what a good dramatic actor you are that some of these scenes that, that was the play. point was to remind everybody. <laughs> that. Hey, cause there is not just funny man, man of a thousand voices. I'll be reminding you again in a few minutes. <laughs> By the way, I'm quite a dramatic actor. I'm going to say Tuesdays of Maury, the David Mamet plays. Like this is a guy who's done some things. I've, uh, yes, I've had an eclectic career. And so my training is paying off. It yeah. really is. My, um, the acting lessons. I know the first season was a crazy helter skelter schedule was the second yeah. season at all more drawn out first one was like three pages a day first one was two and three quarter two uh, uh two and three quarter days per episode Oof. which led us to some 16 page days which for those of you keeping score at home is insane <laughs> seriously those are both records like i'd never shot more than like i think i had an 11 page day once or maybe 12 i was like wow that was insane right two 16 page days several 14 page days um, it's a lot. It's a lot, a lot. And we, I was hoping season two would be easier. We got a whopping two extra days, <laughs> which then they told me. Because we're, we're, we're planning these days and like, boy, this seems almost as bad as last year. It's like, well, actually, they're making us shoot 11-hour days instead of 12-hour days. I'm like, why? Like, well, for money. So actually, out of 24 days, we're actually really only at still 22 days. And I freaked out. <laughs> but seriously, how do you deal with the anxiety? I mean, like you're a trained actor. My back for- goes out, honestly, about every two days. You just every, go, like, honestly. I'm- that's where it, ha- like, um, you know, like Sarno book, you know, healing right. back pain. Right. That's where all my emotional tension goes and mm-hmm. my back goes out and that's how I handle it. When you're doing so many pages, is there ever a time where you go, well, you know what? I can ad lib a little bit if I don't remember the exact line or you're, you're trying to stick to the script. No, I, I'm <laughs> genuinely sticking to the script. Actually, because we don't have time, I'm like, I don't have time to mess around. Yeah. What he wrote is great. Let mm-hmm. me just do that. And then within that, yes, as things come up, especially with Amanda, who's giving me a lot of real emotional stuff, as things come up, right. I'll play around, but. I was jealous because I thought I could have nailed the role of Raj, but the, the guy you had was great. He did well, yes. Yeah. and Bukher did a great job. We thought of you. We thought of you. I, I swear to God, I got a call, and this was on a Thursday. They said, are you available next week, Tuesday, Wednesday for Brockmire? And I said, I, I'm, I'm working, but I mean, I can figure something out. And I didn't hear back again. So this is, is that the, right? So this is the I lesson. I think it was for that <laughs> okay. role. No, we, Joe Buck, yeah. Yeah, we had a scheduling problem with him at the last minute. Right. And he bailed on us right at the last minute, as ah. Joe Buck will. 
you know, because he is a he is a dirty, dirty player who only is successful because his daddy made it happen for him. It's a nepotism. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. You want to use big words. Sure. Um, but uh, we ended up working it out with Joe where right. he ends up being on a feed, you know. Right, right. So, but we panicked in those – that's probably when you got that call. It was like, who do we know who likes our show? <laughs> There's this kid named Burke in Bristol. Yeah, I think he's available he's a sports cheap. guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but no, that character, Raj, I think that's funny. It's a good counterpoint to Jim, right? He's this – he doesn't – I don't want to say he's a lightweight, but he, he does not have the foundation of knowledge that Jim Brockmar does, but he's got a big smile. He's got charisma. Kids love him. He's great with millennials. He is, uh, he's a uh, savvy on the social media and, uh, he connects with a modern audience, which is what baseball needs. Right. You know, and, um, so yeah, he was, that's very much how Utkarsh, that's who he is. Not that he's a lightweight. Sure. He's sure. quite a heavyweight talent wise. Right. But he's, uh. The character appears to be vacuous. Um, yes, but that's not Utkarsh either. <laughs> but I'm going to keep, I'm keep going to compliment Utkarsh to keep leading down the roads of insulting Utkarsh. <laughs> Um, he's very millennial and he's very much a bro, which is very much how the appeal of, of Raj. Right. Uh, Brockmar season two, Wednesday, it's premiering on IFC at 10 o'clock as a sports fan. I know you're a giant Mets fan. This, this start must have you (laughs) over the moon right now. I'm a giant Mets fan, but I'm also a Jets fan. I'm not a giant Giants (laughs) fan. Let's be clear. Right. Uh, Mets. Yes. Looking great right now, man. The bullpen's good. Mickey Callaway knew, man. Like, yeah. The, but do you have that agitator as a of Mets course. fan? Of course. Yeah, yeah, First yeah. of all, we're always going to wait for the other shooting drop. Right. Mets fans only see success as setting you up for a fall. Right. Only ever. Yeah. And as Brockmeyer put it a couple of weeks ago, you know, I predict another season of doom for the Mets, either because it'll just flame out and the wheels will come off and it'll be a disaster, or it will be miraculous and wonderful, and at the very end it'll be a disaster and the wheels will come off. One or the other. Eventually the end result comes. NFL draft is coming up. What do you feel like the Jets should do? Everyone's There's the four quarterbacks everyone's focused on. Is there one you're partial to? Brock and I can talk about this with you later. Sure, we'll do that I, Me, uh, I just met him. He was here, but not because of that. I mean, Sam Darnold would yeah. be my pick. Mm-hmm. It seemed like that was the obvious choice, and everybody talked themselves out of that, right. and everybody's coming back around to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing year, though. Four guys who seem viable. I can't ever – can you remember – has there been a time no, there was four a few years ago, viable? it was Roethlisberger, Eli Manning, and Philip Rivers. Right. Which, and they all those and they all panned out. They all but, did all right. But four – and you get people saying, well, a couple I don't know that, be bust. I don't know that any of those will achieve the level of those guys necessarily. Correct. Correct. And that's why people go, well, maybe a couple are going to be bust, but a couple are going to be really good. I mean, the, the, the odds of 0 for 4 are slim. Yes, and it seems like all of them – Will at least will at least have careers. It yes. seems that way. Yeah, uh, I would go Darnold if I had my choice. Josh Allen seems like he might have the most upside. Big size, yeah. If he can be coached, he's not ready yet, though, right? That's yeah. the word on him. Right, there's a little time. I worry about Baker Mayfield with the police videos, <laughs> the crotch grabbing, and the, but sure, and the he is an issue that and, seems to come up a lot. Well, yeah. it, it kind of matters for a quarterback. Yeah, you're the leader of the team. Yes, and Josh Rosen, you know, is a Jewish guy from Queens. How could I not root for Josh Got him Rosen? Got Josh Rosen. You're loving him. Yes. I thought you were fantastic in Madoff. What a terrific oh, thank movie. You. Very, in, uh, the Wizard of Lies. Wizard of Lies. Madoff. That's yes. right. And uh, De Niro played Madoff. What was De Niro like on set? Um, he uh, relied on me heavily uh, to, you know, help him along and give him an experienced uh, – point of view on the whole thing. Uh, Don Rickles once said he had dinner with De Niro and it was like eating alone. See, that's what I knew, Rickles. I had heard that too. And then you hear Bob is, uh, you know, awkward. But he, uh, that, so I was, I was more nervous 
to hang with Robert De Niro than act with him. Mm-hmm. And I was nervous to act with him. Sure. But he was delightful. He was affable and friendly and warm and sweet and easy did, to like, talk to. Did he know your career? Like, he's like, hey, give me a little mo. Was he-, <laughs> he did not do that. Uh, he didn't hit me up for Simpsons voices, <laughs> but he was, um, mm. no, he was, uh, he seemed to know who I was, That's which is good. good. I mean, I, I was in heat. I didn't do any scenes with him, but <laughs> right. he, I, if nothing else, I'm the kid who looks familiar from heat. I get the kid, right. by the way. Yeah. So I've nerve saying on the eve of my 54th birthday. You look but, great. But, thank you very much. Yeah. But, um, no, he was great. He was lovely. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I love that speech you give about automobiles. Yes. How? Comparing them to women, shall we say? <laughs> I don't know that we could have gotten away with that scene today. I don't think you could have. They probably would have cut it. I'm All the, on the page? Joking. Or you gave a little bit? Or they? No, I, there was a lot was, I would say, 30, 40% of that came out of my mind. Right. You see, I know some guys who would talk this way. I could give you a little more than... Yes, just I, the, yeah, I know what you're looking for here. Things, yes, but it's it was written speech. quite well. Yes. What was Barry Levinson like? I know you told me Michael Mann. If one take is good, fifty is even better. Is yeah. Levinson a little more? <laughs> no, he's much pithier and uh, to the point, and right. he's um, pretty amazing. Still, yeah, still got his fastball. See, I use the sports term. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, Wizard of Lies was great. Brockmire is great. Can you go get Jim? Is that possible? I've, I've enjoyed catching up with you, Hank. But is You're talking to Brockmire? Yeah, is Jim around? We can get Brockmire. Okay, he's a little drunk. It's As um, usual. It's almost it's noon though. It's that. Uh... Yeah. No, I know that's getting quite late for him. Usually he's passed out by now. But no, All you right. still could get him. If you could rustle him up. So do you want to talk do. to drunk Brockmire or, or or sober Brockmire? Um, you know what? I'll take whatever we got. All right, we'll see what happens. Okay, here. great. I can't believe it. That Philip brought his little brother on our mission into orbit. How long until we get there? How long until we get there? How long until we get there? No, I can't believe how easy it was to save hundreds of dollars on my car insurance with GEICO. What's this button do? What's this button do? What's this button do? What's this button do? No, no, don't touch that. Believe it, GEICO could save you 15% or more on car insurance. All right, so Hank Azari was so good. Man, he's funny, he's interesting. And by the way, off air, uh, Hank and I talked about the whole Apu controversy. So uh, his guy, Adam Freifeld, who's great, he had messaged me ahead of time. He goes, hey, listen, we don't want to get into the Apu stuff. I said, no, of course, I totally understand that. Um, for the record, I have support of Hank on. He goes, no, I know. So and at one point, we were getting set up there. I kind of just said to Hank, I said, listen, you know, I'm sorry about all the Apu stuff. You know, I got your back on this. He goes, no, I think I appreciate that. And so as I've told you, you know, my dad and I, we used to have run a store. Like, that was the first South Asian character we saw. It's a satirical show. It's meant to be a comedy. And he goes, Adnan, all those things you say are right. But it has offended a significant number of people. And I, I and and that is concerning. And I said, but Hank, I don't want you to walk down the street. And every time you see a brown face, this guy's Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan. He must hate Apu. He must hate the fact I'm the guy who did Apu. Because that's not the case. And he goes, no, and I think you're right. I'm sure there's a lot of people who like Apu, who embrace the character. As you and your family are saying, but when I hear a story that after President Trump's elected, an Arab guy's attacked and someone says, calls him Apu, you know, then Hank goes, then I'm affected by that. He goes, but one of my people that I'm close to, one of my producing partners tells me that her family's been mistreated and referred to as Apu and you're a bunch of Apus. Because you know what? What was okay back then is not politically correct now. And you do have to adjust. 
Um, and he said, I'm going to talk about it further on Colbert's show tomorrow night. It's, well, I encourage you to check in. So I'm not speaking out of turn. Hank said all this stuff with Colbert as well. And on Colbert, he went further and said, I've given it. And the, how rare is this? When someone says, I've given it a lot of thought and it actually gives a genuinely thoughtful answer. He said, I've given it a lot of thought. And if this has upset, because Colbert phrases South Asian actors, he goes, well, it's not just actors. There's South Asian people of all types who have, who have voiced their frustration with the character. So if the character needs to be tweaked, if it needs to be altered, I'm for that. And if it has to be another actor doing it, I'm for that as well, which I think is immeasurably commendable on Hank's part. It's one thing to say, oh, come on, you bozo, stop complaining. He's saying, no, no, I understand where you're coming from. I'm sensitive to it. And if it's a big deal, we'll get – So, and he said to me, he goes, we need South Asian writers. And I go, well, listen, Kamel Nanjiani's great now. Mindy Kaling's out there. Cal Penny goes, absolutely. We didn't have those writers, those voices 20, 30 years ago. And we need, we need some of those in The Simpsons, quite frankly. We need those guys in there and, and, and to develop. And, and I'm all about inclusivity, which is, as he said to Colbert. So I think it's amazing to say, listen, you want me to step aside? I do 20 and 30 characters in The Simpsons. You want somebody else to do the Apu? I'm all for it. So he's obviously a very thoughtful guy, very caring and, and conscientious person as well. So just wanted to pass that along. Um, and la- for some reason, I don't know how we were able to do this, but I thought we were going to be done. And then Hank somehow managed to get Jim Brockmeyer in the studio. So it's a huge get. Here's Jim Brockmeyer. Okay, well, this is great news. I don't know how Hank Azaria pulled this up, but Jim Brockmeyer is now with us here on Cinephile. Jim, it is great to see you again. Well, thank you. Is uh, I'm a big fan of you, Adnan. I've had a few. Forgive me. I sound okay, though, don't no, I? No, you sound great, you You've got that voice is like honeysuckle. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> no, you're good. Big fan of you, Adnan. Even though both your first and last names sound like they were autocorrect fails that your parents just went with. <laughs> So, but I still enjoy it. Uh, Jim, I often get Adman Burke. People often think that's I bet actually, they do. Yeah, a lot of Burks feel like I'm Irish. Maybe I'm Can you blame them, though? No, you're right. When the name is that close, it can be a little bit tricky. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you know me because I obviously know your work. Oh, I know you quite well. And I know you uh, better, better than, I care, than I care to, actually. I, I love hearing you in the booth and your style and delivery. And I love that, um, you know, the way you're able to kind of just transmit the game. Where do you think the game of baseball is now, Jim? You've seen so much of it. Is it in a good place? Well, you know, no, it's not in a good place, uh, Adnan Burt. I mean, everybody's putting a lot of pressure on this Otani to yeah. save baseball. Oh, yeah. But I think that's unfair, but it is absolutely necessary <laughs> because the sport is dying. I mean, let's face it, four-hour games of dudes just standing around watched exclusively by napping old men. I mean, yeah. uh, instead of reaching out to the younger fans, baseball is just doubling down, just poking them in the eye every time they watch. So the future of the game, it is. It's in Otani's blistered-prone hands. So I, I'm shocked to hear you be this uh, candid, Jim, because I would think you'd be uh, defensive about the game and supporting it, but instead you're admitting that this is a game which is passed by the young generation. No, it, it needs Otani, and it needs me, quite frankly. It needs more guys like me who get blackout drunk by inning number six, and you don't know what they're going to say. That's what the sport needs. Can you tell me the last time you did a game sober? No, I can't. I can't remember back that far. <laughs> if you had to guess, 10 years, 15 years? Uh, this is a storied Hall of Fame terrible career. guess. I, I don't know. I started drinking when I was 14, so I'm guessing then. Probably just at home right. to whatever broadcast, you know, right. Kansas City broadcast was on. I turned the sound down. I'd announce it to myself. That was probably the last time I called a game sober. Casey, guy, I've always wanted to ask you, favorite royal? Is it George Brett? Is it Steve Balboni? Is it uh, Brett Spray Reagan? Uh, yeah, it's right. Brett, you know, because uh, that's, that's the last time baseball was cool was when uh, George Brett cut his hair. That's it. I thought you were going to say the pine tar incident was the last time it was cool. No, no, he flipped out there. Yeah, that, that was Baseball got quite uncool there. It was fun to watch, but it was insane. No, that is true. 
Um, I know that you're a, a sports fan, Jim. You have a lot of great broadcasts. Yeah, not just elk. baseball. Right. Yeah. You can call all things. What do you think of the NFL draft coming up? It's going to be here on ESPN. Well, I, thank you for bringing that up, uh, Adam, because in, I have a bone to pick with all you broadcasters. You're obsessed with this NFL draft. I mean, it's insane. The NFL draft is being broadcast by two broadcast networks, four cable networks. But you know what that means? In 2018 America. We've got least, our bases covered. Well, Roger Goodell reading names off of index cards gets the same treatment as a declaration of war. That's what that means. ESPN, Fox, NFL Network, they're all going to simulcast the taking of attendance. Which one are you going to watch, Jim? Well, look, here's the thing. Yeah. Well, whatever, whatever network you're on, I I don't remember what it is. That's okay. But uh, it's all a bunch of letters to me. Speaking of letters, my show's on IFC, which is buried somewhere in the low 800s. They insist that it's. They tell me it's a real network. I believe them. And the good news is, you can stream the first season on Hulu. And the second season's on IFC. Yeah, Hulu, you can stream. Yes, that's what I need a millennial, though. To yeah, help you know me with how to that. stream in Netflix or I need a team of millennials to come yeah. in and the streaming and the bleaming and the sheeming. Yeah. But uh, thank you for mentioning Hulu. I, I mean, who knew Hulu, by yeah. the way, right? Yeah, right, you think of a hula hoop, you don't think of I'm a- trying to get that to be a catchphrase. One more time. Hulu. Who knew? Hulu. Who knew? <laughs> See, it fits because for old men like me, we didn't know you could stream things. So right. who knew? And then it's Hulu. But plus, every time I get somebody besides myself to say it, they mm-hmm. give me $100. Oh, that's great. Well, that's a product so, placement, I guess. Uh, so Hulu. Get, who knew? There you go. $100. Score. NBA playoffs, Jim. Have you been watching that? I mean, LeBron James and the Cavs locked yeah. up with the Pacers. I don't usually because NBA, these NBA games are like four-hour things that don't seem to end after a never-ending season. I mean, uh, which I thought was baseball's province. <laughs> but the Pelicans, yes, unexpected performance uh, there. Anthony Davis was great. Amazing, and yeah. but especially to me that uh, uh, Rajon, Rajon or Rajon? Well, Rajon Rondo. Is it Mahjong? No, but you're right. A lot of people are always kind of going both ways. I yeah, I'm gonna, you know, let's go with Mahjong. Mahjong. Well, let's just stick with Rondo. Playoff Rondo. Because yeah. he reminds me of me at an open bar. How's that? Well, he's a man in his element. He's making the most of every opportunity. <laughs> he's averaging 13 assists a game in these playoffs, yeah. which uh, coincidentally is the amount – of uh, how many double rye on the rocks I had at my niece's wedding. And she is not talking to me. So I want, can I take this opportunity on your show here to say, I, I do apologize, Susan. Mm-hmm. And also my love to Steve and Marge. That's her parents. They're not talking to me either. So see, what, well, see what happens is I'm killing three birds with one stone here. I'm talking mm-hmm. sports, which I love. I'm Great. promoting my show, season one on Hulu, season two, April 25th, 10 o'clock IFC, if you can find it, which I can. No, no, we'll find it. And I'm also connecting with my family. It's the only way I actually speak to my family members is through a broadcast like this. <laughs> well, that's why I think you're an open book, Jim. Like people can criticize you, but you really put your heart on the line. I do, and right. other things on the line, too, and I get arrested for that. <laughs> well, how about the Kentucky Bur- Derby? I can figure a guy like you who likes a good You're about bourbon. to say Kentucky Bourbon, <laughs> you? Now you're speaking my language. Yeah, I was thinking of you because you're a little bit tipsy right now, but I can see, listen, the sport of kings, the Derby, first week in May, that's something you're into, right? Nope. Not a huge fan of the Kentucky Derby. Don't <laughs> care that? for it, no. See, to me, horses like platypuses and genocide are one of God's greatest mistakes. <laughs> You know, I have never looked at a Great Dane, for example, and thought, hey, hey, here's an idea. Let's make that thing 2,000 pounds bigger and a lot angrier and then make a small child ride on it. 
You know, I just and I also I find the way that a horse eats an apple to be disturbing because it's uh, <laughs> why is that? No, because it's almost exactly the same way that Charlie Steiner eats it. You know, it's just a blur of uh, overeager teeth. It's a lot of teeth. You ever seen Steiner eat an apple? No, I have not. I oh, love his work. Ask him to do it the next time you see him. <laughs> he can eat an apple too. Oh, it's weird. Last one for you. Being Canadian from Toronto, people want to know more about Jim Brock. Right? They want to know what you think about the Blue Jays. Do you think the Expo should come back? Have you ever been north of the border? What do you think for our Canadian audience, Jim? I try not to think about Canada. Uh, as much, I think, and uh, it's now you've actually sent me down a weird rabbit hole that you made me think about it. Uh, no, don't care for hockey, so don't think about Canada. Don't like the cold, so I ignore Canada in that way. Right. I don't even recognize that the Blue Jays won in 92. Right. You, you- to me, it's just it's a lost season. <laughs> Canadian entertainers, maybe Shania Twain, Drake, Jim Carrey, Mike Myers. Phil a lot Hartman. of funny people. Yes, uh, Phil Hartman, that Matthew Perry, Michael J. Fox. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. There's some been a lot of okay. Martin Short. Yeah, all right. Uh, Eugene Levy is he can eat? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Captain my, O'Hara. Here's my theory on this. Sure, is that it's so it's so in general in Canada so not funny. It's just so plain and blank and vanilla like the snow up there. Right. That all the humor of the entire society just gets distilled down into certain people. Right. So you get like uh, Eugene Levy and you get like Michael Fox and right. you get uh, Jim Carrey. They become then, the vessels. Yes. And then everybody else is just this kind of plain vanilla. Yeah. And uh, they don't see like you're not funny at me. <laughs> I felt bland and colorless yeah, very, as yeah, you gave well, that. Yes, assessment. it just doesn't uh, – like they, here's a kind of joke that Canadians make. Sure. They say uh, – uh, you say like, uh, is, <laughs> hey, what time is it? Is it 3.30? And they go, no, no, I blew it. <laughs> see, I can't even – I can't even parody the Canadians. Oh, come on. Probably. Give me one more time. Try it again. You say – Hey, what's today? Wednesday? And a Canadian will say, yep, all day. See, that's that's not <laughs> yeah, a joke. That's, that's a Canadian joke. It's Canadian humor. We'll work on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jim, congratulations on the show. Congratulations on a Hall of Fame career. Thanks for spending some time with us. I actually am in the Hall of Fame. Did you know that? Uh, Did you know that, Adnan? In, in Cooperstown? I'm not, no, I'm not kidding there. In Cooperstown, as wait, we wait. speak, my jacket, Jim Brockmeyer's jacket, iconic yeah. plaid jacket, and microphone are in the Baseball Hall of Fame. They really are. I, I swear it's true. Go okay. check it out. All right. We're going to look this up now. It's on display of the great broadcasters. I couldn't be more honored. It's been Kurt a, Gowdy and, and, and Red It's Barber, been a dream of mine for years, so much so yeah. that I actually snuck up into the uh, third floor stall years ago, years and years ago, and I put a plaque of my accomplishments up in there just so people would read it. Yeah. But this real honor obviously means much more to me, but I'm not taking down my toilet plaque because well, I love that one, too. I can appreciate that. Thanks sure. so much, Jim. No, thank you, Adnan. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much to Jim Brockmeyer. He's obviously very entertaining. You know, when you, you talk to Brockmeyer, you end up kind of wanting to do the voice as well, which I have found to be an issue. By the way, Hank also said to me, maybe I should just voice Apu as Jim Brockmeyer. Hey, maybe now all of a sudden he owns the Quickie Mart, which I think would be a fun character, or at least a fun voice and a reimagining of Apu. I think I also want to share, you know, I'm a big Nick Nolte fan. I just read his book. I encourage you to check it out. He's got a few stories in there I wanted to pass along. I just think it's interesting if you love acting, if you love Nolte, or just love his path. It's fascinating. You know, he's from Nebraska. He comes from the Midwest. He's this big guy who wanted to play football. His football career didn't work out for him because he kind of got in trouble with the coaches and all of a sudden, his family moved around a little bit, but he kind of found his way into acting and didn't find acting success until later. Nick Nolte's a guy who wouldn't really become a popular actor uh, until he was in his mid-30s. And as he details in the book, he was acting on the stage for 12, 13 years. And all of a sudden, you do Rich Man, Poor Man, and people think, oh, a star overnight is born. And that's not the case. You know, whenever you hear of these actors who burst upon the scene, they've been doing it for a while. 
So Nick Nolte was doing this for over a decade, and all of a sudden he gets a couple movies and becomes a star. But he tells early on that he was approached by this manager who said, listen, I can make things happen for your career. And he invites him over to his house, and he's making dinner for Nolte. And, you know, he's talking about his career, and he's telling him of this roster of actors he's helped develop. And he goes, okay, I'm going to be right back. And Nick Nolte's sitting there, a young actor in his 20s. Uh, you know, he's very excited for this business manager. The manager came down wearing nothing but a satin robe and went up to Nick Nolte and said, hello, cuddle bunny. And at that point, Nolte realized, wait, I think I'm, I'm a part of something else right now. Later looked it up and the manager was specifically telling young actors, I can get you roles in exchange for sexual favors. And he was like, listen, I'm just some country boy from Nebraska who wants to play football. I'm so delusional about this entire business that this guy's thinking that I'm going to sleep with him or do whatever just to get acting roles. Like, is this, is this how the business works? Like he was just so mystified by it, but he didn't have to go down that path. He ended up doing some other films and he was in the deep, which was a huge box office success. And of course, 48 hours, which is a huge hit. One story that was interesting about Eddie Murphy, he said when he worked with them after they were talking, he was just kind of giving career advice because Eddie was like, you know, he's just a kid. You got to forget he was in his, he's like 19 when he was doing stand up. He's in his early twenties. He's a mega star. And Nolte at this point is in his 40s, and he's just kind of saying, you know, what's your key? And Nolte's like, listen, man, I'm just, I've been doing stage for a decade and a half. Now I'm doing some movies. Like, I think you do one for yourself, one one for the audience. And he said, Eddie looked at him. He's like, yeah, I can't do that. He's like, I, I got I got a certain life to lead. He's like, all right, I'm just going to make movies that make a lot of money. And that was kind of his key to success. Uh, he then talks about Down and Out, Beverly Hills, and other films of that ilk. The Princess Tide story is interesting. He says that Barbara Streisand was thinking of him for the role. Uh, so then he auditioned with her, and then they started doing the film, and he actually said to her, hey, listen, let's not get involved romantically. And she said, oh, that's a little presumptuous. You think that I'll fall for you? He goes, the way we're playing this character, my guy is incredibly vulnerable, and you're this therapist who's very nurturing. When you're doing that on set for 12 hours a day, it's easy to then take that home, and all of a sudden now you're nurturing me, and I've still got my issues. And he goes, trust me, I've got my issues. And he tells in the story at one part, Barbara Streisand had called him and was like, listen, I want to be with you. Like, let's make this work. And he was like, no, we can't do that, Barbara. And he's like, why not? And he's like, no. And she's like, he's like, well, what do you want from me? And he's like, I just want to be a good friend. And she's like, all right. Which, that's amazing. Barbara Streisand's hitting on Nick Nolte. <laughs> and The Prince of Tides was a wildly successful film. He won a Golden Globe for it. He was nominated. It was his first Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. I remember watching it. It was one of those movies that I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm going to like The Prince of Tides. But I watched it with my mom. And I actually did think it was very good and probably better than people would realize. The story I really liked he tells about Life Lessons, which I've talked before on my Scorsese stories, a movie that I love and which he really enjoyed doing with Marty. As he pointed out, it was part of a trilogy, and the other two movies weren't very good. Woody Allen's movie wasn't very good. Francis Ford Coppola's was underwhelming. So the Marty film, which was the first of the three, part of New York stories called Life Lessons, kind of got lost. But Nolte said he really loved playing the role of the painter. He knew quite a few painters at the time. Scorsese urged him to drink beer on set, put on some weight, get in a character. And he said the big thing with painters, just like actors, it's very physical because you know the painters they're always moving they're always up and down and moving music's playing they've got to have inspiration and he goes that's what i really liked about painting and like playing that role he goes so later i heard marty was doing cape fear i enjoyed working with marty so much i wanted to do it but i got word back that scorsese thought of me too much as the painter lionel Dobie in life lessons big burly hairy angry and he goes you know this lawyer is not nick and i like nick but he's not nick so nolte said i went and got my best suit I got a couple of gla- I got a pair of glasses, which I don't need glasses, but I wore them anyways. And I went to a premiere that I knew Marty was going to be at, and De Niro was there too. And he said, Marty walked by me twice and did not recognize me. And the third time he turned, he goes, Nick! And he's like, yeah! And he's like, oh, hey, how are you? Good to see you. And he goes, oh, here's Bob. I don't know if you met Bob before. 
And he said, De Niro was very quiet, but he was aware that he kind of said hi. And he goes, I'm telling you, that's how key it is for actors. You just make the director see you in a dirt and light. Next week, I got a call from Marty. Hey, you want to be in Cape Fear? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. He reads for it. He does it. Uh, he said, Juliet Lewis was, to use an old-fashioned expression, quite a pill. He said her, she was dating Brad Pitt at the time, and they broke up. And he said, Juliet Lewis started treating me like her real dad. And at one point told me, you're not half the actor Robert De Niro is. And I, you shouldn't even be in this movie. <laughs> and Nolte said he was able to forgive her because he's like, listen, you're a teenager who just got a heartbroken by Brad Pitt. And I get it. But he said it was amazing how he's like, I'm playing this dad whose daughter hates him. And yeah, off here, Juliet Lewis was giving it to me as well. He said, as far as De Niro, he said he finds him almost painfully shy at times. He definitely has a real need and desire to be alone. He said they got along very well because they really immersed themselves in the character. And he said De Niro was amazing. He said he'd get up at midnight. He'd go to bed at 9, get up at midnight. He'd lift weights for 90 minutes. Then he'd go back to bed and get up at 4. And he goes, so he was obviously bulked up for the role, but he was miserable because he was just so cranky. But he was able to channel all that anger and aggression into Max Cady. And he said, Nolte even realized when they're doing the film, he realized his character was getting so overpowered and he wasn't used to that. Nick Nolte's a big, brawny football player. And he was watching the film in the rushes. I was like, man, my guy is so emasculated. And he's just getting run over by De Niro's Max Cady. And 14 years, counselor. Uh, but he said it was a fun role to do. And he said he got along great with Jessica Lange, who played the wife in the movie. He said they kept laughing. That scene where they slip all over the blood and the housekeeper dies. He goes, Marty can put more and more blood. And they're like, how much blood do you need here, Marty? He's like, no, we can have a lot of blood. So he said they're falling over the place laughing at how much fake blood they got. So he said it was a really enjoyable time for him and a really fun movie. He also said a movie he loved is Tropic Thunder. He said Ben Stiller called him and said, hey, Nick, I've got a great role for you. I think you'd be really funny as this character doesn't have hands. And I'm going to do the send-up of Platoon. And he goes, here's what you don't realize about Tropic Thunder. When you're making a movie, making fun of war movies, you end up making a war movie. So he said Ben still had to have a huge budget. He had to have crazy pyrotechnics. He had to deal with the crazy heat. Like he goes, it was like making Platoon. Somebody's making a comedy. And he had, you guys play it straight. Um, but he said he had a ton of fun doing that film. He thought Downey was amazing. And Ben was really fun as a director. Uh, also, Hulk, he mentioned briefly, was just fun to be in a cartoon movie. Warrior, he was nominated for an Academy Award as well. And he said the director told him, listen, Nick, I'm kind of, you know, using your life here as a template in writing this character. He plays a guy who's battled addiction and substance abuse. And he was able to get an Academy Award nomination for supporting actor in that movie. He also thankfully talks about the famous mugshot, one of the greatest moments ever on Conan. They, like, retired that mugshot because he was showed all the time. And Nolte said at that point, he actually quit boozing, but he got really into HGH. And he would put a needle in his stomach all the time because he goes, he really believes in human growth hormone and all these alternative therapies. And he started to get a reputation around Hollywood as weirdo Nick. And he goes, I don't care. I'm going to live longer. However, one misstep is he started to use GHB, which is also known as the date rape drug. And he thought this would help in terms of anti-aging, et cetera. Well, one night he took way too much, and that's the night that he ended up driving in California. And apparently the one witness had told the cops, we saw this guy going across the lanes like six different times. He's literally doing like zigzags. And when the cops stopped him, Nolte was actually grateful. He's like, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I need help right now. I, I know. And he said that mugshot, he didn't realize how immortal it would become. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. His hair is all crazy. And he goes, literally, in 1991, I was the sexiest man alive. Eleven years later, I've got that mugshot, and everyone's making fun of me. But he goes, thankfully, I was able to quit that drug. And he said, listen, I've battled substance abuse my whole life. Uh, it's always been a challenge for me, and it's not something that I had away from. And he's very honest about that. But 
Um, I thought it was a really interesting book. So if you like Nick Nolte, I recommend the book. I mentioned before how much I love the movie Affliction. Uh, he mentions in that in that movie how it's in the book rather how it's one of his favorite roles. He was so happy James Coburn won the Oscar. This can't be true. We've got to get an Oscar expert on this. Ricky, look it up. He said after James Coburn won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Affliction, he said his friend Alan Rudolph called him and said, "Hey, uh, you're not going to win tonight." He said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "In the history of the Academy Awards, no supporting actor and lead actor have ever won for the same film." I said, that can't be right, but I guess it is. Because then Nolte goes, okay. And then Benini, of course, won Best Actor for Life is Beautiful. And Nolte goes, great. The streak continues. So that is a, accurate. That is accurate. Amazing to think that that's gone for so many years. Uh, Thin Red Line. So this is the last story I'm going to tell you. Thin Red Line story. So Terrence Malick, who's just, I mean, he's a brilliant filmmaker, but he's obviously off his rocker. He would start shooting scenes three quarters of the way through and then halt and then start doing something else. And when Nick got there, he goes, it's a month in, and the actors were going nuts. They go, we don't know who the lead actor is in this movie. We start shooting the scene, he stops, and then they go shoot some other scene. They go, are you going to keep that scene? He's like, well, I'll get back to it later. And after Nolte realized what he was doing, he goes, Malik wanted the light to be what's called, and Ricky, you'll know this, it's like pure light. You want the last two hours of sunset. So he wanted every shot to kind of have that pure light, that, that beam of light. And so just, and John told the cinematographer was going nuts. He's like, well, listen, we can't just shoot the movie two hours a day. We got to shoot 12 hours. He's like, well, whatever. I just, I really love that two hours and the way the actors' faces look, et cetera. So Malik, he said, did something brilliant. He knew everyone was pissed. So he called the, literally all the crew and he let them all vent their frustrations. He goes, okay, you guys are right. We're going to start working different. Thanks for telling me. And they didn't change a thing. <laughs> so everybody thought it was going to be different. He's like, now I'm going to stick to how I'm doing it. Important correction. Um, it was accurate, the best supporting actor, best actor, until 2013 when both Matthew McConaughey and Jared Leto won for Dallas Buyers Club. Nice. Okay, so there we go. All right, so up until then, that was back in 1998. Thank you for the correction. So then there was this incredible game of one-upsmanship one up, one on the set, Sean Penn and Woody Harrelson. And he said it wasn't necessarily mean-spirited, but the pranks were unbelievable. He said Woody threw a live snake in a Sean Penn's trailer. Sean Penn got back and called the local radio station and said that uh, Woody Harrelson's going to be signing autographs at the local town fair. Said he was his assistant. Woody had to show up, 10 bucks a head, sign autographs. So they're going back and forth, but it's okay. And then he, Woody calls Nick one day. He goes, listen, I need your help. I've got an epic prank going. And he goes, what is it? And he goes, it's on Sean. And he goes, well, he's not going to get hurt, is he? He goes, no. He goes, all right. Nick Nolte calls Sean Penn and goes, hey, I need your help. I'm at the police station. And Sean goes, what happened? He goes, I got in a minor fender bender. It's not a big deal, but I just need you to come down here. He goes, okay. They go down there and they've got this. And, and no 30 knew. He goes, Oh my God. Like the three cops are in on it. They've got this gigantic muscled Aussie. He goes, just freakishly large tattooed, angry. And he's the one who ostensibly I've hit his car. So Sean gets there and the cop goes, all right, no big deal. Just, I just need you to ID who this is. And he goes, yeah, that's Nick Nolte. He goes, okay. Um, we've also got the test of his breathalyzer. So I'll be right back and check on that. And Sean then looked at Nick like, hey, were you drinking? And Nick kind of looks at him like, no, I'm like, I, I, like I had a, a couple, but it's okay. Because Sean's like, if you're drunk and we're, whatever the hell they were filming the third red lines, we're in trouble. He goes, the cop goes away. At that point, the other cop who was there takes the big Australian tattooed guy who supposedly Nolte got in the fender bender with, takes him away. So now it's Sean and Nick. And before they were about to pull the prank, Woody saw the cops grab guns. And he goes, are you serious? You're going to use guns? Because we got blanks. So they're sitting there. It's Nolte and Sean Penn. And Sean goes, we got to get out of here. And they hear, bang, gunshot. And Sean Penn gets like, what? And Nolte's like, bang, bang. And they go, oh, my God. And Sean's about to get up and looks down the hallway. And all of a sudden, the Aussie tattoo guy comes running down the hallway. and goes, I'm getting out of here, dead or alive. And he looks at Sean Penn and goes, you're getting me out of here. And Sean's like, puts his hands up and goes, all right, buddy, just, just take it easy. Just take it easy. I got the keys right here. I'll get you out of here. 
And he opens up the back door, and there's Woody Harrelson waiting with a camera taking pictures of Sean Penn. <laughs> that because it was one of the most epic pranks I've ever seen. And he said, Sean did not laugh. He he did not laugh. Like, they're dying. He's just like, all right. And all Sean said was this. He goes, if we did this in L.A., I would have had my gun on me, and it would have got ugly. <laughs> I'm like, wow. The only revenge that they then got back on Woody, Woody's strict vegan, uh, Sean Penn ended up feeding his kids like some burgers and stuff while, while Woody was gone for a while. Woody apparently incensed, but in my head, I'm like, dude, uh, beef burgers versus giving a guy a heart attack because he thought somebody was murdered. Not a huge deal. Lots of great stories in Nick Nolte's book. He's just an average man with an average life, and his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost, playing my strength. strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every, Every man. man. All right, you, listen. It's going to be tough to top along, Kane Pauly. It's fine. I've only seen two movies since, so my choices for this weren't that strong. I'm going to say that on the front end. Do you like to revisit for Every Man, even though you've yes, it's always a revisit. Yeah. It's not a first watch. It's always a second watch. I will just tell you now on the front end. The other movie that I've seen, <laughs> which is not the Every Man. In the past two weeks was frozen. Oh man! That is so tough. it left me After with his nieces. There's left me with this one. All right. Michael Clayton, oh, a yeah. 2007 Best Picture nominee, written and directed by Tony Gilroy, and starring George Clooney at his peak, Tom Wilkinson, whose tour de force steals the movie, the famed director Sidney Pollack, who died just months after the film premiered, and Tilda Swinton, whose chilling performance won her the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Michael Clayton is a legal thriller with zero courtroom scenes. Clooney plays Michael Clayton, the fixer at a prestigious law firm. If a client hits a jogger with their fancy car in the middle of the night, he goes to handle the situation. If a partner in the firm strips down naked in a deposition and professes his love for a plaintiff in a class action lawsuit, he goes to sort it all out. Depending on who you ask, Michael Clayton is a bagman, a janitor, a miracle worker, Shiva, the god of death. And the guy you buy, not the guy you kill. He's also a gambling addict who owes a loan shark $75,000 after a restaurant he opened with his drug addict brother went belly up. This lack of funds and lack of professional respect due to his ambiguous status drives Michael Clayton. But he's also morally conflicted. He's going through something of a midlife crisis. He used to work in the DA's office, so there is a righteousness to him. But he also knows what comes with working for a big firm. There are going to be clients like pesticide conglomerate U-North that need to be defended for doing some really bad things. Even up until the last three minutes of the film, there is a sense of uncertainty about what Michael Clayton is going to do. And it's the good kind of uncertainty. It's not confusion or lack of understanding. It's suspense because there are a multitude of factors that motivate Michael Clayton and you don't know which horse is going to come out on top. The film holds up remarkably well considering the fact that it was made in 2007 and I actually found it to be better upon a second viewing. The acting is tremendous, the pacing is fantastic, and there are a handful of scenes that I could watch over and over. It comes in at just under two hours and is currently available on Netflix. Well done. I, I would like to rewatch it again too because I saw it once and it was really good. I took remember that scene at the end. It was great with him and Tilda Swinton. He goes, does it look like I'm negotiating? Like <laughs> His frustration. Intense. Yeah, you know, his anger boiling up. Um, and I remember when he won the Oscar for Suriana, some people said, well, it's a shame because Michael Clayton might actually be George Clooney's best performance. 
I think it might be. I was going to make that claim. He's obviously more known for other films, but I think this is him at his best. And it's weird. Like he does a great job in roles like this where there's, he's almost, there's a little like schlub quality to the guys he plays. Like they're always a little slightly downtrodden, but mm-hmm. still like a little arrogant and smarter and, and can figure things out. Right. But there's always a little something off with the character and you definitely get that sense in this movie. Yeah, I love the the moral conflicts. Like you said, the gambling addicts, the horse. I mean, there's lots going on there. By the way, good year for you, Oscars, by the way, 2007. That same year as No Country for Old Men, there will be blood. So I was kind of curious as you were doing it. Like, why didn't Michael Clayton do better along with Tilden Swinton winning, but pretty heavy, uh, heavy opposition? I thought Wilkinson was the best, by the way. I don't yeah. think that's even up for debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wilkinson's great in that movie. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Thanks to Dan Stanzik, Rick Pashmore, the entire crew. Thanks so much to Hank Azari and Jim Brockmire for dropping by. Our next podcast, a Tribeca special, including Rick Pashmore's Brush with Fame with Paris Hilton. You're going to hear from Ben Lyons, the fat Jew, along with director Burt Marcus. <laughs> All that more coming soon to our Tribeca recap. Plus, Schindler's List. I was there at the panel. Stories of Spielberg, Neeson, Kinsley. All that and more. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.